doing live stream performances is not a substitute for live music. It's a different thing, in my opinion. And it doesn't fulfill the same need. You know, you don't feel like you're playing a concert. If you're watching somebody on a screen, you don't feel like you're at a concert. You know, there's something about being in the same room and experiencing something in that moment that you just can't replace. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, good old-fashioned conversation. Do you ever wonder where creativity comes from? It's really been one of the central questions I've been puzzling for years and years, really in my my own work, my own research, when I work with others around me, and of course in the SIDCAST. Creativity is or should be central how companies operate and adapt to change and very often why they don't really adapt to change. Actually, on that score, just think of all the changes going on in response to the coronavirus and how many businesses are really being forced to change very often in desperate situations. And how do you change if you're not willing to change, if you're not willing to embrace creativity, an alternative way to think about the world the way that it is. I mean, the entire retail sector of the economy has had to change for some time because of e-commerce and because of Amazon and because of Walmart. But boy, after what that sector has been through and maybe continues to go through as well, change is not a thing you need to think about every now and then. I mean, it's about survival. And to do that, you just have to be creative. You have to look at the world differently. I think also, you know, at all these different people during the shelter at home, the stay at home, the quarantines, the isolations, and it's continuing to today, how many creative people there are. There's so much streaming. You can watch streaming day and night, it seems like, of all sorts of things. And they're creative. They're interesting. People are really stepping up. And it's something to see. You know, it's often and really in the world of the arts that you can see creativity unbridled. Part of it, of course, is that, you know, if you don't have anything new to say or to sing or to write or to perform or to draw or to experience, then you're not, well, let's just say you're not going to become a noted artist. You're not going to become someone people are going to remember and talk about. And if you've been listening to the SIDCAST for a while, you know what I'm talking about. I've had writers like Jody Picot, Adam Gopnik from The New Yorker. They both have been on, among other people. And I've had uh, quite a few musicians as well. Grace Kelly, the 27-year-old jazz phenom. Hafiz Shabazz, who is a master percussionist. The pianist, Sally Pincus, And even that guy that wrote the music for Seinfeld, Jonathan Wolf. Every one of them, creative. Every one of them, in their own way, changing how people look at the world. Today on the SIDCAST, I have one of the most creative and original thinkers and performers and composers in the world of jazz, Mary Hal. If you don't know who she is, it's probably because you haven't come across experimental or avant-garde jazz. It is by definition not mainstream, but she's been called New York City's least predictable improviser, one of the most exciting and original guitarists in jazz or otherwise, and that's from the Wall Street Journal, and one of today's most formidable band leaders from the Village Voice. Mary takes her jazz roots quite seriously and adds experimental rock and folk and other musical traditions to create a different type of sound that has adherents and fans around the world. She's performed at the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, at the Newport Jazz Festival, the Berlin Jazz Festival, and many, many other high-profile global venues and festivals. Just last year, in 2019, she won a MacArthur Genius Grant. So where does creativity come from? What's the mindset of the creative person? And what's Mary Halverson's story? Sounds like a classic SIDCAST guest. Let's get into it. 
Welcome to the SIDCast. It's a pleasure to have Mary Halverson with me today. Hi, Mary. Hi. I'm in New Hampshire, in Hanover, New Hampshire, and you're in New York or in Brooklyn or in where Brooklyn, are you? Brooklyn, New York, yeah. You're in Brooklyn, yeah. I seem to like to record my podcast right out of my dining room because I like the reddish color of the walls yeah. that's showing. I don't know if that's peaceful for you to look at, but uh, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so I know we were trying to connect and uh, record a podcast for a while and you were touring so much and it was tough to figure out, but now now, since everybody is remote, it turns mm-hmm. out that in that respect, it made it a little bit simpler. Sure. So let me ask you, Mary, so about music. Did you grow up playing music, playing an instrument that your parents, were your parents into it? How did this all start for you? I did. I picked up violin maybe in the second grade, mostly because all my friends were playing violin. So I thought it was the thing I <laughs> wanted to do. That's a good reason. And did that for maybe five years, but it wasn't something... I liked music, but I think the instrument itself wasn't really resonating with me. So it is certain point I quit. You know what you made me think about is sometimes you hear parents say all sorts of things about how wonderful their kids are. And so they'll say, well, my little Johnny, my little Sally is so musical. (laughs) Did anyone ever say that about you? Or have you, I don't know if along the way you've ever taught as well as performed, especially younger people, but I'm just curious about that. You know, I have almost the opposite story, which, and I know this is a little bit different, but I took some kind of a dance class or something when I was a little kid and still to this day, a terrible dancer. So (laughs) I guess the story makes sense. But my mom said the teacher pulled her aside and said, you know, some kids just have no rhythm at all. And that's totally okay. And Mary is one of those kids. (laughs) (laughs) What about, you picked a violin because your friends were doing it, but what was it that you were getting out of that? I did enjoy music. I think I always, I enjoyed listening to music. I liked playing music. I think I wasn't that keen on doing classical music. And that was what I was doing, learning Suzuki violin and playing in youth orchestras and that part of it wasn't grabbing me so much. So I think when I quit, I did want to keep playing music. I just wanted to go in a different direction. So guitar seemed a little bit more fun to me at that age. So what was the transition? Where did the guitar come from? You know, I remember this woman coming into our elementary school music class, like as a special guest one day and handing everyone an acoustic guitar and teaching us some basic chord voicings. And I remember enjoying that. There was an acoustic guitar lying around the house that my aunt had left in my parents' house. So it was just around. Mm-hmm. And I think I picked it up and I was into rock and roll and it seemed like a better instrument for rock and roll than the violin. I was able to, you know, learn some Jimi Hendrix songs and Beatles songs And because I already had some musical training at that point, I was able to start by just teaching myself. And I had some tablature books, so I could kind of figure some stuff out. So that's sort of how I got into it. Yeah. And so you mentioned Jimi Hendrix. He was, some of that was an influence for you, a big influence in listening to his music. Why was that? You know, it's hard to say. It was just something about the energy of what he did. There's a certain electricity and it was kind of reckless and exciting. And he looked super cool. (laughs) And, you know, I got a black and white Stratocaster. That was my first guitar. So I was just drawn to the energy and the excitement of it and the melodicism. And I love those songs. And so it must have, I don't even remember how I heard it for the first time. My dad must have had some records, Hendrix records. So you were playing rock and roll music. Did you start writing for yourself as well when you were a teenager, let's say? Or that was later? No, that was later. It was all covers. I remember having a a Smashing Pumpkins cover band (laughs) with some friends of mine who we barely even played. I had one friend who was banging around on pots and pans and another friend playing electric bass. I was playing guitar. So we were just trying to learn stuff that we liked. When did this become kind of 
what you were going to dedicate your professional life to? Not until much later, probably the middle, maybe second year of college is when I realized I might want to do this more than just as a hobby. Right. So tell me you had a compelling professor that changed your life. I like those stories. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) So what were you going to study in college then? Science, biology. Okay. And then, so tell me a little bit about this class that really had a big impact on you. Well, I went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut, and part of the reason I went there is because I heard they had a good music program, but again, I was intending to major in science initially, Mm -hmm. but Anthony Braxton was a professor there, and I took a couple of his classes pretty early on and was so taken with the whole thing that I ended up actually dropping my science classes or dropping some of them. So you weren't going to do a science major at that point, or you still were? No. At some point, I got kind of too deep and realized there was no turning back. So what was it, if you can kind of reflect back about what you heard or felt that made you want to make this type of... I mean, it's a big shift from science to music. Yeah. And it was weird for me, because I've always been a very practical person, (laughs) and trying to make a career in music didn't seem very practical. So for me to actually make the shift was a big deal for me, because I didn't really want to. I was Mm -hmm. resistant to it. But... Yeah, Anthony Braxton, huge personality, very magnetic person, very inspiring person. He was a great teacher. And I think the main thing that hit me upon studying with him was that I realized music was much more than I had initially thought. It was much bigger. There were so many more possibilities than I initially thought. So I think what he did was just show you how large the universe of music is and all the things you can do. And he really encouraged creativity. He simultaneously encouraged experimentalism, but also the importance of tradition and learning from different musical traditions. He did so many crazy things and so many different things within music. So it was really inspiring to see what he did, but then also see how reverent he was to so many different types of music. And he was also just very encouraging and positive, which I think I really needed at that time because I didn't have much confidence. So to have someone so inspiring and positive being like, yeah, come on, you can do this. It was kind of what I needed around age 19. Absolutely. And, you know, those stories are great stories because they're life-changing stories. And even if you don't become a professional as accomplished as you have become, it gives you that confidence to do whatever you end up doing. But I have to ask you about your parents when you ditch the science. What do they say? (laughs) (laughs) You know, they were pretty cool about it. I'm sure they were terrified, but... No, my parents are really cool. And my dad is a landscape architect, but also a painter and a sculptor. And I think part of him wishes he had pursued straight up painting more. And actually, he's semi-retired now, and he's doing mostly painting. But I think he's a very artistic person. So I think he was happy about it, although I'm still, I'm sure it still freaked him out a little bit. Um, No, but they were both very encouraging. I think they thought, all right, well, if you want to do this, we're not going to tell you no. Yeah. You also said something else I just want to ask you about, which is kind of what you're teacher was saying, which is, yes, encouraging you to be experimental, but also to kind of know the vocabulary, know the dictionary at the same time. And I heard a similar type of story from someone else I did a podcast with last year. This was a jazz musician who we talked about improv, and I'll ask you about that, obviously, as well. I think he's even the one that said that you have to know the alphabet. He may have used that word. You have to know the alphabet before you can start to combine them in unusual ways. Can you say a little bit about that and kind of your own thoughts about that type of thinking when it comes to doing improvisational or even avant-garde music, experimental music? Yeah, I think it's really important to have a strong foundation and to study musical traditions of various types. It doesn't have to be any particular tradition. You know, one could get really deep into Indian classical music Mm -hmm. or jazz or blues, anything. But I think 
having a foundation on your instrument and in a tradition or in multiple traditions is really great because it frees you up. You don't have to stick to it, but if you have that vocabulary, you can stick to it if you want, or you can take it and go somewhere else with it, but at least you have a strong foundation. So that is something that's always been important to me. And I think also there's often a misconception that people who play experimental music only like experimental music or can't play other types of music and vice versa. You have musicians who play pretty straight ahead jazz and people think they only like that. And I found that that's often not the case. And in the musical universe I operate in, there's some of that, of course, but there's a lot of people that really are interested in more stuff than one might think. And there's a lot of crossover, especially today, between so many different styles of music. Right. It's very interesting what you said about how people kind of pigeonhole others into a certain category, mm-hmm. in your case, music. But that's, I think that's the way people think. It's true. And I've put a good deal of effort into trying to not be pigeonholed, right. you know, because I think it's hard if you become known as the guitar player that just does this one really specific thing, then people only call you when they want someone to do that one specific thing, you know, so it can be kind of limiting. It could be career limiting, exactly. Mm-hmm. As well as kind of making it challenging to be the creative person you want or just try new things. You know, it's a totally different uh, context, but I had a similar type of thing in my first academic job. I was a serious scholar writing social science, but social science papers and publishing in journals. And what I also wanted to do is talk to real managers, real executives, and I wanted to teach them and I wanted to interact with them and I wanted to help them make better decisions. And I found in my first academic job that I was completely typecast as kind of, this is the guy that's just cranking away, doing the research, publishing in these top journals. And this idea of actually talking to real people, they couldn't get their head around it. I ended up leaving that institution because I wasn't being given that opportunity. And I'm now at a place for a long time, 26 years and counting, where I have had that opportunity and continue to have that opportunity. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And I'm kind of proud of myself of recognizing that. You know, sometimes when you're younger, you don't always recognize it. Now I think of an academic career as an entrepreneurial career. It's very fortunate to have a career like that, where you could always try something new if you want to try something new. That's all the fun of it. That's great. And it probably gives you the freedom to do that. Exactly. And actually get rewarded for thinking of and doing things that are different than other people. I don't know that every field is like that. I'm sure you've dealt with that because you've been on the continuum of music. There's kind of the standards on one side uh, that goes all the way to experimental music, which is where you've really made your name. Mm -hmm. You know, I noticed that you were on NPR's Tiny Desk concert once. Maybe, I don't know, maybe Uh more than once, but it's a few years ago that I may have seen YouTube on it. And so I remember... I did a podcast with Michael Lutsky, who's their senior, like number two or number three NPR running the company, not in the artistic oh, wow. side. And so he gave me a whole tour and I saw the tiny desk and it was fantastic. It was just spectacular. To yeah, see it. it's so cool. Was that something you had paid attention to before being? In- yeah, I was aware of it because I'd watched a whole bunch of them. And it's so interesting because in concept, you you wouldn't think it would be something that would work or be particularly captivating, but it's really cool. You go in and it really is just this tiny little corner of their office and, you know, you bring in whatever gear you can take in, you know, but often for a drummer, that's not even a full drum kit. You just kind of take whatever you need. And then everybody, it's sort of this open plan office. So everybody working there stops and kind of stands around and listens to you. And somehow they create such a great environment. They really do. It's And they've gotten so many well-known people. So many mm-hmm. people come through Washington, D.C., which is where NPR's head office is. Anyways, and I think they just reach out. They, I forgot the guy's name that runs it. He knows everyone in the music business. He just calls them up. Yeah. Musicians love to do it. And what's cool about it, too, is they have so many different types of music. 
So then you get people that are just a fan of Tiny Desk that are going to check out all kinds of music that they might not have checked out otherwise. That's actually true, because if you have music at a certain label and says, that's not for me, you're not going to go to the concert, you're not going to buy, well, you don't, nobody buys anything, you, you're you not going <laughs> to <Yeah>. stream it. <laughs> right. shouldn't have said that because you're in the music business, but I think you, <laughs> that's okay, I'm you've, aware. <laughs> you've seen it, uh, you've been living through it. And actually, so when you started coming out with your first albums, were they CDs at that stage? Is that how they came out? Or? Yes. Yeah, there and, were so, and so you've been a practicing professional musician during the time that we had this shift from buying a CD. I'm not even going to go back to the albums mm-hmm. days, which is what I had growing up. Right. To, well, first there, it was illegal downloading the Napsters of the world. And now, you know, there's mm-hmm. everybody does it and you get some tiny amount of royalty for it. How has that changed the business, do you think? It's changed so much, even just in the time that I've been working in music. And like you said, before that, it's changed. It's constantly changing. But the other thing that makes it complicated is that I think with music more than with other professions, there's no standard, really. There's so many different models for how to make a living in music for if you have a record label, there's so many different models of how that could work. There's not really a standard for pay. You know, you could get paid really well or terribly or everything in between. So there's not really standards for anything. So it's always kind of in flux, I feel like, and always changing. And you have to kind of just try to make your own place in it and decide what you want to do and how you want to approach it. But since people have been buying CDs less, that's definitely shifted where I think musicians are making less money on physical sales. Although vinyl has had somewhat of a resurgence. So there's also, I still press CDs and vinyl for for Uh. most of my releases. And then, you know, most people listen to it on Spotify or Apple Music or formats like that. But people that still really want the physical product can get it. And I'm one of those people, you know, like uh, the new Fiona Apple record that came out a couple weeks ago. I'm a huge fan of Fiona Apple. Yeah, got a lot of publicity. Yeah. And I was upset that I couldn't get the CD. She didn't release it or labeled it. <laughs> Not yet. It's going to be available later. But I found myself frustrated that I was going to have to stream it for a few months before being able to purchase. Because I like, if I really love some music, I want a physical product. Yeah. I like having the CD and the record. And one of the things you'll see, one of the things I've noticed, especially with my students who are in college, that you see with streaming when people primarily listen to streaming is that they there's no information about the record or you have to really mm-hmm. look. So for example, when we were growing up, you would read the liner notes. So you would get a CD and you would read all about the album and who's on it. And now you see people don't even know who's on an album because they're only looking at a JPEG of the cover. So if everything's not listed on the cover. So that's strange too, because a lot of the information gets lost as does the ritual of sitting down and putting on a record and listening to the whole thing. You know, it's sort of the ADD (laughs) generation of people checking out something for five Mm -hmm. seconds and making a judgment and turning it off. So, I mean, it's kind of creatively, it's got a big impact because you go back to some of those albums from, you know, let's say the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper, one of the greatest albums ever, right? And this Mm -hmm. was a work of art where it was totally integrated one after another and there were themes that kept coming. And then if you just pick a song out, which is what we do now, a Mm -hmm. a, uh, MP3, right? You just get that and you miss that context. I don't know what other art there is where that happens. It hasn't happened with books, for example. Yeah, it doesn't. It's not like you just read chapter three. I mean, maybe some people do, but normally you would read a book start to finish. That would be out there a little bit. You wouldn't do that. But for music, it somehow has become the thing. It's actually quite interesting to think about that. I mean, art, 
I'm not quite sure how you would do it for a painting or a sculpture, but, or, you know, landscape architecture. But let's just look at that little corner over here and the mound and leave everything else. It's really extraordinary. It must change how creators, how musicians think about the process of creating whatever they're creating. Yeah, it's weird because for myself, and I think a lot of musicians do this as well, I still put a lot of thought into a sequence for a CD, even though I know that a lot of people won't be listening to it in the sequence it's still important to me that whoever is listening to yeah. it is going to have the correct sequence. So it's almost like I'm approaching it the same way that I would have 15 years ago. It's just that things have shifted, but the, it hasn't shifted entirely. It's just shifted quite a bit, if that makes sense. There, so there are some people that are actually listening to oh, the yeah. beginning of the end. Yeah. What they're getting that you don't get in, when you listen to an individual track is they're getting the story. Mm -hmm. They're getting the narrative flow, exactly. which we know in so many walks of life, narrative flow and storytelling is everything. And somehow, you know in music it's like whatever that track is if there's a story you want to tell it becomes this kind of finite story as opposed to the canvas that lets you go for 40 or 50 or 60 or 80 minutes or what have you yeah very exactly. interesting so you've been described as um creating music that's avant-garde or free jazz experimental these are the words that come up mm -hmm. of course many people know what the word improv means in improv jazz so are they all part of the kind of the same continuum of music or is there some fundamental difference among these things like improv you go to a jazz concert or you go to a club and they might be starting with some standards or whatever they're starting with mm -hmm. but they'll go off and create something on the spot which is kind of amazing. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's exactly how you would describe your music, though. No, because I compose. For most of my projects, I compose quite a bit. And there's always going to be sections of the composition which are left for improvisation of different types. So sometimes there might be moments where everything is completely made up on the spot. And sometimes there'll be some kind of a form or structure and there'll be one musician or a couple musicians improvising within a framework. Or it might be kind of a blend of the two or something altogether different. So I try to leave spaces for different types of improvisation to happen. But pretty much all of my groups, there's some element of structure. Although I do sometimes freely improvise with musicians, but usually those aren't my own projects as a right, leader. Right. So I don't know how you would answer this question and even whether I'm going to fully get it, but how do you decide how to write and what to write in the music you create? For me, it's pretty intuitive and kind of mood-based. But the first thing I do is figure out who and what I'm writing for. Let's say, for example, the main group I've been working with recently is a group called Code Girl, which is a sextet that has lyrics and a singer. So I write the lyrics first. So the lyrics could be about any number of things. And to me, that kind of sets the mood for the music. And it also sets the structure, because if the lyrics are in sort of an irregular structure, the music might form around it in an irregular manner. So I just kind of go intuitively. I write pretty quickly. And then I go back and edit it and make changes later. But usually once I get going, and sometimes it's hard to get going, but once I get going, I just it's almost an improvisational approach to writing. Pretty quick and trying to go with your first instinct. I usually find if I start second-guessing things too much, it ends up sounding like that. Right. That's a tricky thing also, right? Because people always say, you know, especially if you're experienced, your intuition, your instinct is exactly right. But then so mm -hmm. much of certainly writing words, writing books is about rewriting. It's not the writing, it's the yeah. rewriting. And you kind of said something like that as well. So it's kind of like, it's a balance, right? And how do you figure out what you're rewriting? What should you stick with that first instinct? And I guess that's also a, exactly something that 
kind of falls into place over time when you gain more confidence in how to do it. But it's interesting kind of um, conflict in a sense in how to go about doing it. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, when there's lyrics, you start with the lyrics and then you create the music for it. Exactly. Which I think is the reverse of how most people do it. But I've always found it unintuitive to have music and then put lyrics in later. I don't know why. It just doesn't make much sense yeah. to me. Well, that's uh, how Bernie Taupin and Elton John created their music, at least according to the Elton John movie I saw. Oh, wow. Oh, that's cool. Bernie would mail him or hand him words, lyrics, poetry, Great. and he would create some magical thing around that. I love it. And then I read a lot about how Lennon and McCartney wrote their music, and they were both extremely cooperative in that collaborative, of course, because they're, mm-hmm. like, they're trying to help each other, but they were also competitive, which I thought was really fascinating. Because, you know, I can't remember who said what, but it's something like, no, John showed up with this kind of cool lyric. I had to make sure the next day or that night I came up. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, great. Yeah. So the creation of art, it's hard to kind of put your finger on it and explain it and be analytical about it. But I find it really fascinating to think about how that happens. Yeah, and everybody has such a different process. I mean, I often find musicians that I know and work with that very different ways of writing, different ways of inspiration. And yeah, it's fascinating. So I found this quote about you in Rolling Stone. It was a feature on you and your music. And you recorded saying, I'm not trying to be contrarian or anything. It's just my aesthetic, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what did you mean by that? I guess maybe that goes back to the pigeonholing we were talking about earlier. But I think some people think that I'm trying to be weird (laughs) or that my goal somehow in creating music is to create something weird. And that's not really the case. I'm just writing music that I find exciting or that I think is beautiful or that I like. And I think that tends to be, you know, a little bit left of center. So yeah, I would stand by that quote. I think I still feel that way. (laughs) Yeah. So you're creating something that most people, I don't know about most is right, but I'll say it, will find it's more out there. It's not as accessible as some other things might be, but that's not because you want to be contrary. That's who you are. That's what you're creating. That's what your ear is listening to. Yeah, and I like to remain open to different possibilities. Like if I wanted to just write a straight up pop record, I would. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't at this moment, but I think, you know, just remaining open right. to going in any direction is a good thing. That, and if you look at the flip side of it, you get some of these hardcore experimental audiences. They probably think my music is much too accessible. <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, no, you get the other side of it yeah. too, uh, where you get these audiences that are really into the most crazy out experimental stuff. And they would probably consider that some of them would consider that my music is too melodic or uh, too conventional <laughs> yeah too conventional <laughs> that's part of me says oh that's really crazy on the other hand of course that's the way it is because there are people on life is a bell curve and there's lots of tales mm-hmm. and they're very very long sometimes those tales they go further and further up it kind of gets to my next question which is so you've created music that is well it's experimental it's different it's not what most people are listening to or grew up with let's say people that take these unconventional paths if you will in a field they're very often and not accepted. It's much harder, you know? It's hard to break through. You've done it. I mean, you just won a MacArthur Genius Grant. It doesn't get any more breakthrough than that. So why do you think that is? You know what I mean? It's people that are going their own way. Yeah. They get attacked as much as being celebrated. No, it's true. And I don't know if I know. I mean, there's definitely plenty of people that don't like me and don't like what I do, but that comes with the territory. (laughs) And... You know, I don't know. I mean, I feel very lucky that I'm able to do music that I believe in and that might not be completely mainstream and that there are some people actually listening to it and paying attention because I never really expected that. I think when I set out to have a career in music, I remember making an agreement with myself when I was trying to decide if I was going to be a musician. I said to myself, are you okay with working full time in an office doing administration 
for the rest of your life. If so, go for it. And if you're not cool with that, don't do it. So I decided I was cool with that. So I had very low expectations. (laughs) And I did work full time in an office for many years and was able to quit. And so I think because my expectations were so low, even just being able to quit that job felt incredible. And why I've been able to have some degree of success with it, I don't really know. (laughs) I feel incredibly lucky because I do think it's not easy. And I think there's a lot of musicians that deserve a lot more success than they have in this field because there's very little space for it. There's not that much of an audience for it at all. Enough that you have been independent of other work for some years now. So Mm -hmm. there there is an audience. Yeah, there is, I guess, but it's not easy. (laughs) So I mentioned the MacArthur Genius Award. What was your reaction when you heard the news? Did they just call you like the Nobel Prize? They call you in the middle of the night and tell you, hey, Mary, guess what? How do you find out? Yeah, well, it wasn't the middle of the night, but it was similar. Well, first of all, I don't answer my phone if I don't know who it is because... 90% of the time, if I don't recognize the number, it's someone I don't want to talk to. So I usually just let it go to voicemail. So this number keeps calling from Chicago. I'm like, who's calling me from Chicago? I'm like, well, it's important. They'll leave a message. That's what I said. So they called like three times, finally leave a message and wanted to talk. And I called them back and they just said, congratulations. Completely out of the blue. I thought somebody was playing a trick Mm -hmm. on me at first because it was that shocking. It was just out of nowhere. I had no idea that something like that might be on the horizon. So must have felt good. Yeah, I was really in shock more than anything. I don't know how to describe it other than I was in shock. And I mean, extremely grateful. And yeah, I was happy, but it it was a pretty big adjustment because it was, you know, you're just going about your normal day and something insane happens. (laughs) You know, and usually when you're going about a normal day and something shocking happens, it's usually Mm -hmm. bad. (laughs) You get sudden news, it's most often like someone's sick or something Mm -hmm. bad has Mm -hmm. happened. So this was a Yes, and it was crazy. Crazy good. And how much money comes with MacArthur now? 625000 which is over five, five years. And have you decided what you intend to do with some of that money? Well, it's funny. I mean, I'll give you one example. I don't have to worry about money now that coronavirus hit and no musicians have any right. work. Right. So already it's something that's enabled me great freedom to at least, you know, we have so much to stress and worry about right now. At least that's not something that I'm worrying about. Right. Um, so for me, that was actually the first major impact was that I don't have to worry right now. Yeah. And I'm able to stay home. I was planning on staying home a little bit more anyway before the coronavirus thing happened because I wanted to be home more composing and practicing and have the freedom to do that without having to be on the road constantly. So for me, that's the biggest thing. I mean, I do hope to save some money. I might be able to execute some larger scale projects than I was able to do before. So I don't usually plan ahead that much in terms of, you know, in two years, I'm going to be doing this. Then three years, I'm going to be doing that. I just kind of in the moment, what's the project I want to be doing now? So I haven't thought about it that far ahead, but I'm trying to write a bunch of music now. And like I said, just have the freedom to stay home and work and do a little bit less because I've been running around nonstop for many, yes, many years. Yes, I realize that trying to get on your calendar just to do a little podcast. <laughs> <laughs> People treated you differently in some way since then, since this? I guess I haven't really noticed that. Yeah, I can't say I've had a tangible feeling, but I've received a lot of love and congratulations from many people, and that's been really nice. That's great. So how big is the community of musicians and creators that you would put in your camp, uh, avant-garde, experimental-type music? Oh, I mean, 
all over the world, for sure. All over the world, enormous amounts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't even know if I would be sure. able to count. I mean, in New York alone, there's such a huge scene. And even within that, there's sub scenes and groups of people that cluster together and play a lot and maybe overlap with different types of music. And that's one of the things I like about being in New York in the music scene is you can discover new musicians all the time. You know, so it's not like being in a small town where you know everybody that plays. There's always more to discover and more musicians to check out. At the same time, there is a nice feeling of community here, I'd say. Do you think that feeling of community, the club scene, the performing, I I know you think you hope it'll come back eventually, but do you think anything is going to change because of this virus and Oh, definitely. I mean, I think a lot of clubs won't survive it. And I think, I do think live music is going to come back. And I think people are really missing it, musicians and audiences. But I think it's going to come back slowly. And probably initially clubs will have to operate at 25% capacity or 50% capacity. But I think it's going to take a couple years for things to really get back. But, you know, that's just speculation. Sure. What do yeah. I know? But I think one thing I have been thinking about and realizing during this period is that there's no substitute for live music. Doing live stream performances is not a substitute for live music. It's a different thing, in my opinion. And it doesn't fulfill the same need. Right. You know, you don't feel like you're playing a concert. If you're watching somebody on a screen, you don't feel like you're at a concert. You know, there's something about being in the same room and experiencing something in that moment that you just can't replace. Yeah, and there are a lot of streaming concerts and performances. It's really actually amazing how much creativity has exploded from all sorts of, not just professionals, although many, many professionals have put on all kinds of shows in different mm-hmm. fields. And some have been unbelievable to watch. It's been really fantastic to be able to see them and listen. But it's not the same. And, you know, even yeah. teaching online, which is what I've done now, it's gone really well. There are certain things you can do technologically that are kind of cool, but mm-hmm. uh, it's not as good. It cannot be as good. It's different, right? It doesn't feel as good, even if you're no, able to kind of give the same information. It doesn't feel as good. And the other thing is, so I've been a professor for, you know, three decades now. And so I could walk into my classroom and I know what's going on. I know this. I could feel it. Mm-hmm. The mood of the class almost. And I imagine that mm-hmm. in a way you can do that when you walk for, you know, a set and you get the feel for what it's like. And I don't know what that is. It's not just visual. It's not just listening. It's not that you're touching people. So it's not, the, but right. there's something there. Yeah, there's something there. The audience is contributing just from their energy. The audience is contributing. Yeah. And I imagine it would be the same for a lecture class. You're feeling the energy of your students. You're feeling the energy of the audience, and that's making it a different experience. I bet um, somebody's doing research on this topic, because people have done research on every topic that I ever think of, I discovered. Yep. <laughs> you think about people in a room or in a club, well, you know, there's actually body heat, and that clicks in the brain. There's things going on in the air that we don't see. There's things that are happening. And I think it would be really interesting to kind of capture, uh, try to understand what that is. Now I'm going to have to start Googling around to see if somebody has done that type of research. I'm sure there is that interaction you describe with the audience. It's a real thing. And it's a sort of a communal experience. And that's another thing that's missing is that you're going through this totally unique experience in the moment, whether you're in the audience or performing. You're going through this experience in a room with people. So there's a sense of camaraderie that you're experiencing that's absolutely not there, not even a bit on a live stream. Exactly. I want to ask you about being a band leader. So, you know, you're a performer, a composer, of course, but also a band leader. And first of all, why did you decide to do that? Because that's different. That seems to me, and you tell me whether this is right or not, but a band leader is now, I mean, the word leader is in that phrase. You're a manager, you're a leader in a way that's different than being in a group or by yourself where you're doing your Mm -hmm. thing. It's very different 
And when I first started out in music, I didn't do much band leading. I would have collective groups where I was co-leading with other musicians or I would play in somebody else's band. And it's a very different experience. I think I started doing it because I enjoy composing so much. So I wanted to write my own music and then have bands. So I started doing that. It's a lot more responsibility. It is a very different experience. You know, if I go to Europe with my own band, it's I have to be on top of so many things. I, you know, I have to be looking out for people, making sure everything goes smoothly, making sure we don't miss the flight, making sure everyone's okay. Whereas if you show up as a side person, it's less pressure. You just show up and you play and... Both experiences are great, but they're very different. And in early March, I was in Europe with my band Code Girl, right when this coronavirus stuff started happening, which was one of the most stressful <laughs> experiences I've had in a long time. Because I was the leader, it was stressful anyway, it was stressful for everybody. But you know, every day shows were getting canceled, or the show wouldn't be canceled, but the flight would be canceled because people were not flying all of a sudden. So trying to navigate that and make sure everyone was okay, and you know, make the decision to pull the plug in the middle of the trip and get everyone home. That's a tough decision to make, isn't it? Yeah, it was hard because we had two shows left that hadn't been canceled, and but at that point it was very clear. You know, Trump had just made this crazy announcement that was like, everyone has to get home by midnight Friday, you know, and there was no information. There was no, is that American citizens? Does that include American citizens? Does midnight Friday mean Thursday at 12 a.m.? Does it mean the end of the day Friday? So everyone was panicking. We just said, well, we, you know, at this point we have to get home. This is crazy because we didn't want to get stuck over there. But uh, yeah, I think I slept for about three days straight after that. (laughs) That was around the middle of March, I guess, right? Yeah, I think we got home on March 12th. But anyway, that was kind of a tangent, but just saying, you know, you have more responsibility, but it's something I really enjoy. And I think what I've done is over the years of playing in other people's bands, I've just taken notice of what I like and don't like in band leaders. So I've tried to kind of emulate the things that I like in other band leaders. What's one thing that you like, for example, you've emulated? I think there's so many things. The number one thing is treating the musicians with respect and trying to make sure they can really do their thing within the framework of the band, not trying to micromanage and control everything, trying to make sure you have fun and be positive and make it a good experience where everyone feels like they're enjoying themselves on and off the stage. I guess that's one of the things I try to do is make it fun and a good experience and make sure everyone feels well taken care of. So some of what you just said is exactly what a leader of a team in business, a good leader in a team in business would say the same thing. Oh, that's interesting. It it is. You know, I wrote, uh, that was probably four years ago, it came out a book called Super Bosses, where I looked at leaders that help create other leaders. And I looked at them in different walks of life. And one of the leaders I looked at was Miles Davis. And I ended up interviewing many, many, many people, but I couldn't talk to him and many others around him. But I did have a short conversation with Wayne Shorter, Bill Evans, and he was the only, no, there's one other musical person in Finland who was an orchestra conductor leader. And it was remarkable when I learned what many of the things that Miles Davis did in running his band, how similar it was to what these CEOs of big companies that were very, very successful, what they were doing as well. And a big part of it was creativity, was this not just asking for, but really demanding, expecting, demanding, mm-hmm. training for, hiring people for that ability, all of those types of things. Now, and you know, in the arts and music, I could imagine how that's important, but that's also turns out to be very important in 
mainstream industries as well, mainstream sectors, at least for the best leaders. And I remember one thing, I can't remember if I read it or someone told me about it, but Miles Davis used to tell people in his band, he would spice up the language a little bit, but if you have nothing new to say tonight when they're performing, then don't, don't show up. Every single day, yeah, that's something new, something, to, and he demanded it, he did it himself. And he, imagine that, bar set that high. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> but then that's how you create these bands that 50 years later, you know, somebody like me comes around, starts studying it for a book about leadership. I think for me also choosing the right people is extremely important because if you have the right people in your band, it's easy and it's great, you know, and for me, that means having people that are fun to be around that I want to spend a couple of weeks with on the road constantly, but also that are going to really step up and do what you said, which is innovate and, you know, bring everybody, lift everybody else up with them. You know, because I've noticed that you could have a night, it's like we all have bad days where you're just not feeling super creative or inspired. And that's when you kind of rely on somebody else. You know, maybe somebody else in the band is on fire that night. And that energy really lifts you. You know, I can think of one example of we were doing a set and with Code Girl and the bass player, Michael Formanek, the set starts with a bass solo, just him. And then he brings in a bass line and the rest of the tune comes in. And he just started, his energy was so intense from the first second and that set the mood for the entire thing. You know, so if everyone was low energy, there was no way they were going to be after hearing that bass right. intro. So things like that, it, you know, really matters. Right. That's also a good example of how you can have leaders that are not the formal leader of a group or a band in this case, because that's a being a leader. It's somebody is setting up a standard for other people, not to force them or push them, but because that's what he or she feels, what they want to do, their totally. own, you know, their own standard, which I think is very powerful. Are there many other women in experimental music that uh, you've worked with or that have been even role models for you? Yeah, absolutely. I work with a lot of women and it it wasn't always like that. I, I think it's changed quite a bit over the years. And that's another thing, talk about the music industry changing, where I felt a tangible shift to the point where many bands that I play in now are about half women, which was almost never the case. I was almost always the only woman in a band when I first started. So there's a lot. And I think it really is a momentum shift because if you see a lot of women performing, it inspires young girls to start. And, you know, I, even teaching in college now, I see more women. It's still not 50-50, but you see a gradual shift. And I think it's great. I mean, it, things like that, for me, I don't try to force them. You know, I, I don't have some quota where I have to hire half women in my bands. I think these things happen naturally and happen over time. And it, to me, it doesn't need to be forced, at least in my own experience, because it's already happening. Right. But you have to have that talent pool to draw on in the first place. Mm -hmm which is now the case. Exactly. It's changing for sure. And again, it's not there yet, but it's getting there. Why is the band called Code Girl? That is actually a quote from Anthony Braxton, uh, my teacher. And he said all kinds of crazy <laughs> things, but we were on tour once. I played in his band mostly when I was in my 20s, maybe even a little bit later, but anyway, it doesn't matter. We were on tour somewhere and he said the phrase Code Girl. And at that time I was just starting the band and I carried a notebook around with me because I would write down ideas for lyrics and song titles. So we said Code Girl and I said, oh, cool. I, I like that. I'm going to write that down. So I wrote down Code Girl in the notebook and I said, what's the code? And, and he said, five, 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 five. So I wrote that down. <laughs> <laughs> it's just total nonsense. He just said that. Yeah. yeah that's funny. <laughs> so, uh, and then I found that later in the notebook and I thought it would be a good 
name for the band because it's a lot of the lyrics are pretty cryptic and coded and code girl is just a very cool phrase you should see if you could put a trademark on that one when you're ready to write a book that's as good a title as i could think of you know it's funny i saw there was some movie called code girls which i think was about female coders yeah, yeah. i didn't see the movie but yeah it's funny you see these that's things right so we don't have too much time but a couple more questions for you so what do you like best about what you do because you know you compose your band leader you used to tour when it was possible to tour <laughs> you're a teacher i bet there's a few other things i didn't mention so yeah what do you like best about what you do in that portfolio that you've created i mean i think what i like best is there's never a dull moment you know you never really fall into a routine where it's like oh it's this again you can make your own schedule things are always different you're always learning stuff and growing and pushing yourself and being inspired by people and meeting people all the time it's a very social profession also and yeah, I think also I like being my own boss, just, you know, kind of deciding what I want to do, what I don't want to do and trying to formulate some kind of an adventure. It's often adventure. That's an answer that if somebody asked me that question, I may have said something that would overlap quite significantly what you just said. And we are yeah. in totally different fields. Every day is different. You get to create what you want to create. You get to hang out with people you're interested in hanging out with. It's challenging. It's fun. It's, uh, mm -hmm. it's all of those things. We have some nice sound effects back here. I don't know if you can pick up oh, on yeah. that. There's uh, probably one police car and one fire truck in all of the town, and then they decided to come right by me. But, you know, <laughs> during uh, stay-at-home, shelter-at-home times, that's par for the course. I did a yeah. class where somebody's cat was walking in front of the laptop. <laughs> what are you going to do? That's just the way it is. I know. It's so weird now with the Zoom thing. I know. So let me ask you one last question. It's a question I like to ask people because it's an advice question, and uh, but it's a particular spin to the advice, which is it's advice for yourself. But it's, imagine if you can go back in time when you were 21 years old you're doing whatever you were doing if there's one bit of advice you could give to 21 year old mary halverson what would it be about life about work about anything i think one thing i see a lot with the younger musicians and i was probably like this too is that everybody's in a rush everybody feels like they got to do everything now they got to release a record now they got to be doing everything right away and i think just well now of course nobody can do anything so it's almost an enforced <laughs> break but i think just taking your time with things and making sure to do things thoroughly rather than skimming over things, you know, get really deep into something. If you're going to put out a record, you know, make sure it's really good before you put it out, you know, take an extra six months to spend composing or rehearsing or working on it and to not have such a feeling of need for immediacy. I think is something I would say. What would you say? <laughs> wow. No one's ever asked me that question. <laughs> um, I actually, with what you just said. I would say I was one of these guys in a big hurry for everything. Part of it is because I believe that every day counts and that it's actually mm -hmm. almost morally wrong to waste a day. Now, that's a crazy statement, I realize, and an unreasonable <laughs> one. And the moral statement is about myself, not about anybody else. And that turned out to put too much pressure on me over the years that I did to myself. And, uh, you know, as you get a touch older, you get more wise mm -hmm. and you start to balance it. Because if you don't have that drive, then it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to accomplish things that you want to accomplish. So it's a little bit like, you know, sticking to your intuition and then rewriting the music at the same time. You've got the yin and the yang. You have to have both of them. You have to have that drive, that push. But you have to be able to kind of say it's okay to take the time. It's not a race. And a lot of people have answered this question that I just asked you by talking about process. That it's the process that counts. And that's a cliche, but the answers were way better mm -hmm. than my shorthand description of it. And I think that's true. And I think the process thing is a good point, because if you're not enjoying the process, you're certainly not going to enjoy the rest of it. 
And I think focusing on the process and not focusing on the end result is also a good thing to think about. I think it's actually quite a mentally healthy thing to do, Mm -hmm. especially for kind of high-achieving, high-driven people. I think it actually is a good thing. Things are going to work out, more or less, they're going to work out. Sometimes great, sometimes less than great. But the pathway in getting there. And, you know, we see that with our students, more undergraduate students than MBAs, because they're, they're 20, they're 21. They are in a hurry to do all kinds of things. And it's very hard to get them to slow down. And I don't even know if it's possible because, you know, getting into an Ivy League school or any top school in the first place means that you've already dedicated many years to try to get to that stage by doing all sorts of things. It's not enough just to be smart to get into these schools. There's plenty of smart people. Right. You would have had to dedicate all sorts of things. And so it's hard. It's a hard lesson. But it's one that I think most people eventually get to. And if they don't get to it, they may end up regretting it a little bit. Absolutely. Well, what an interesting conversation. I'm so glad we finally were able to do this, Mary. Yeah, Uh, me too. Really fun. I learned a lot. And the connections between what you do and how you think about it to other things that I've thought about or the other guests that I've had on the SIDCast is really kind of amazing. I shouldn't be surprised by it because it it keeps happening. Yeah, no, I love it too. There's some kind of universality between different creative fields. And yeah, it's it's fascinating. there There really is. So Mary, thank you again. It's a pleasure to have you on the SIDCast. And we will share some of your information with anyone who wants to learn about what you're up to. It won't be to see a show where you're performing, but there's plenty of CDs and MP3s, as we said, lots of other things as well. (laughs) Mary Halverson, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SITCAST is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.